all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is the show where you can call in and get answers to any question related to the health care of yourself or someone in your family or maybe even uh, one of your friends. You can reach us right now. We encourage you to email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. We try to go through those and answer those directly, but we also like to share those with our uh, listening audience. It's always a great idea. You may think that the question you have is not really applicable to anybody else, but almost always there is a lot of uh, questions out there about the same thing, and you certainly can help somebody by calling in today, not just to get the answers that, that you want about a symptom that you have or a Uh, Maybe it's a side effect of a medication or just an overall question about anything. It's probably going to help somebody else, too, because I guarantee you they're having the same type of question. So we typically have a little bit more time on the front end of things. I think everybody's a little bit skittish to call in. So I want to encourage you to do that right now. I'm going to go to our first caller, Michael in Hattiesburg. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I am well. I've got a question for you. Is olive oil good for you or just better than other oils? My, my question is, if I'm going to buy a can of sardines, would it be better to buy one packed in olive oil or in water? Yeah, great question. So, you know, there's been a lot of research about, you know, olive oil and other oils. And some of that is consumption of the oil itself. And some of it is what do you cook things in or what do you, in your case, probably preserving it in that. And uh, it does look like the plant-based oils, olive oil being one of those, does have some beneficial effects. Generally speaking, any type of fat that comes from a plant, and that would be sort of nuts and uh, and things like olive oil, that's going to be better for you than a, an animal fat. Now, you can heat that all up to the extent where you take away some of those properties. So if you're cooking with it and you cook at very high temperatures, then that's probably not going to be as healthy for you. Um, certainly just dipping in olive oil, you know, that's a lot of the Mediterranean culture and the way that they eat and the types of foods that they eat incorporates that, uh, that's, you know, particularly if it's extra virgin olive oil, some of the properties that are in there aren't, uh, lost over time, uh, if it's fresh. So yeah, I, it certainly has some, uh, a lot of, uh, evidence, I would say that it is better than some of the other olive oils. So a lot of people are like, well, you need like safflower oil or sun flour oil or all kinds of different oils. 
Um, th- those are good too, but the vast majority of evidence for the the type of oils that are good for you to eat, uh, that would be olive oil. So, and I tell people to look. If you eat a ton of, you know, if you if you look at some areas of the Mediterranean, they will eat like two tablespoons of olive oil a day. Not just like a tablespoon of it, but, you know, they either mixed in with something or use it as a dip, dipping oil or, or cooking uh, or more in some cases. But if you just do that all day long, you have to consider the amount of calories that you're getting and, you know, different things. And moderation, if you look at those diets of people that do live longer, they certainly have a varied amount of other things that they eat. You mentioned sardines, too. You know, sardines have sort of gone back and forth. Pretty high salt content, but other than that, actually really healthy for you. So that's, a, you know, a fish uh, that's, uh, that's pretty healthy. But I'm a big proponent of olive oil. I like it myself. I think if you're wanting to improve your diet and you want to switch out some of the animal fats that you use frequently, olive oil is a great choice. Uh, just to clarify my question, though, would it be better to have a can of sardines packed in olive oil or packed in water? Yeah, I don't. Choice of not having any oil at all. Right. I don't know that that's been studied to any extent, but I would say probably it's better if it's packed in olive oil just because you're eating that, you know. Right. All right. And so would you also say then that it would be healthy for you just to take a tablespoon of olive oil and and eat a tablespoon of olive oil? Yeah, I would. uh, That's perfectly fine. But I would uh, personally, I would use it with something else like, you know, some people like that. They love to just do it like that. But uh, yeah, that's that would certainly be a way to enrich your diet in a way. That's not the only thing I would do. And you probably could negate a lot of those effects if you ate a a tablespoon of olive oil and then went to McDonald's and got a Big Mac. Um, So you have to look at all of it. But, you know, that's one of the ways that you can improve your diet. Gotcha. All right. Thank you very much for your time. I really enjoy y'all's show. Oh, thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening, and thanks for calling in. Let's go to Wilma from Memphis, Tennessee. Good morning, Wilma. Good morning. A friend and I have been discussing a living will this morning, and I'm wondering where is the best place to keep that? I mean, like if you're in a car wreck and it's at home, where do you keep it? Yeah. So a couple of things about that. So a living will is your intent of what you would want to happen if certain things, negative things happen to you. For instance, if you were in a car wreck, if you're unconscious, what would you want to be done to you uh, if you weren't able to voice that, to communicate that? And um, in, in, it's sometimes combined with a durable uh, power of healthcare attorney. Uh, which is a statement that can have that sort of living will or your intentions of things and who your designee is that, uh, you know, that they would contact that if you came into the ER for for um, uh, something like a car wreck, um, for example, and uh, they wanted to contact somebody you were unconscious to see what your wishes would be. Another way to do that, because we have so many, um, you know, if you go to the doctor regularly and use the same healthcare system, um, they can upload that in the healthcare system and have that in your chart so that if they're able to oh. get that, for instance, we use Epic is the, is the uh, electronic uh, health uh, record system that we use. 
So that's that's something that we can see, even if it's not at our own institution, if they use Epic. So uh, Epic has a function called Epic Everywhere, and we can see those in the Baptist health systems or other health systems, you know, for example. So that's something to think about. It might be useful to um, – to, to, uh, it's always useful to talk to all of your family about this. I tell people all the time it's great to have that and to tell your physician about it so that they can place that in your chart so that everybody's aware. For instance, if you don't want to be put on a ventilator or you don't want you know heroic ma- uh, measures, and it's very important to specify those out and understand all the things. So in talking to a physician about it, about everything you want is important. But you also want to talk to your family members because I've – I have experienced with some of my patients once they had they was they made it clear to me what they wanted, but I may never have met their family and they may not have had those conversations with their family. And if there was something to happen to them, uh, a lot of times their family became very upset with that because they did not know about what your intentions were. And you can help your family out by having something like that and those discussions about it to say, hey, this is what I would want because that's the best thing you can give to your family. If you're not able to communicate and you're in an ICU situation and you're on a ventilator and things aren't looking good, you know, it's great that you, if you've had those discussions with your family, not just a legal document there or a statement of what you would want, but the discussions to say, hey, mom or dad, they had these discussions with us and they told us what they wanted. And um, that's very powerful in allowing them to make those kinds of choices um, if you're not able to make them. So, yeah, I, I would I would definitely, uh, you know, explore that. Talk to your physician about it. Talk to your family about it so that everybody's on the same page should something like that happen. And those things can change over time, too. You know, if you did one, if you had, uh, you know, a, a clear expectation five years ago or 10 years ago, there may have been some things that changed. Maybe you changed your mind. Maybe you have other chronic illnesses now that may change your um, your overall chances of, say, coming off a ventilator. Uh, maybe, you know, things things certainly have changed. So it's it's useful to update that as things change in your life. Very interesting. Well, now, if you're taken to an ER, would most hospitals automatically check this, like Epic or whatever that system is, to see if yeah, if, if there's anything in there? If you're in the system and that they're using, then they're going to look at that first to see. Um, okay. Now, it doesn't quite help, you know, if you call uh, emer- you know emergency services and they arrive at your home. You have chest pain, you go unconscious, you know, they don't have as much to go on then. Um, and it's, it's a good idea. Your, your original question was, where do you keep that? You know, you can keep that at home. I've got that on my refrigerator. Right. But I, yeah, it, and, and that's a great idea. But they may not, you know, if the EMR guys come out and they're like, hey, you know, they're not going to search around for that. They're pretty much going to focus yeah. on on resuscitating you. So a lot of people have bracelets on those kinds of things. Sometimes those can help, too. But letting somebody know, that's one of the most useful things, because oftentimes um, when EMR services come to your home, uh, somebody else is going to come about the same time, too, in situations. Just in my experience, you know, 20-plus years of experience with my patients and sort of what happens. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
Yes, ma'am. Thank you, Wilma, and we appreciate your call. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of health care topic that you might want some answers to. We're going to go to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I, I didn't know whether to call you or wait till Thursday and call Creature Comforts, but since uh, university there is, is a premier medical, what you're, you're still a research center, right? Right, right. Okay, I want to ask you a question because I, maybe I call the right thing then because uh, I, I was watching something late night television about years ago. There was a lot of, of, uh, of enthusiasm about training dogs to train uh, that like, if they were living with a person who had uh, seizures, that these dogs could tell when a seizure was coming on and alert their owner, you know. Yeah. And they were trying to train dogs to sniff out cancers and all kinds of things. And it, then it disappeared. Never heard anything else about that. Is anybody doing any research on that or? Is it all faded out, or what happened? It didn't work, or what? Yeah, I've seen. I'm, that's interesting that you brought that up. So that I haven't seen anything locally um, that, that I'm not aware of anything that that we're doing on it. And um, I'm not. I'm thinking about you know probably it probably would be a great great topic for creature comforts as well. But um, you're exactly right though. There's a lot of things about dogs and other animals that uh, they can predict certain things that they're probably attuned to things that we're not, whether those are sounds or whether those are smells or just even the way that they read body language. You know, dogs and cats both, they really read body language more than they they can go on uh, on words or the the sounds or even intonations that we have, and particularly if they live with their owners, there's a lot of things that they can you know they can uh, pick up on. But I'm not aware of anything new on that. I, I am aware of of some of those studies. I've looked at some of those, and they're actually pretty good. Um, you know, I had somebody ask me one time, uh, several medical students over the years. They say, "Why don't we use dolphins since they use ultrasound?" to uh to detect certain things and really what you get down to is like okay those are good like they they can do a lot of things and but if you look at the sort of the cost differential between a ct scan or an mri and a dolphin uh getting in a pool with a dolphin and and how they would communicate that to you um you know it's a little bit different but it is incredibly interesting um and beneficial in a lot of ways because you know Dogs can certainly pick up on things. Like you said, seizures has been one of those that they've been sort of trained to alert, um, you know, other people about that or alert their their owners about it. So I do think it's interesting, and it's certainly something that needs to be explored a little bit more. And I bet we'll probably have a lot of things out of that, whether it's with the animal itself or with artificial intelligence devices that pick up on the same things. I think once we understand what's the mechanism there, of the animal that's recognizing something, whether that is a seizure or whether it's a tumor. And if we can replicate that in a in an automated way with artificial intelligence with a device, then maybe we can pick up on that before it happens. But I think that's a very interesting, uh, you know, part of science that uh, a lot of people are looking at. Well, years ago, I had a home health patient who, whose dog kept sniffing. Uh, this. He thought it was a little mole on his arm and, it, it, it turned out to be a, a melanoma, and uh, his dog was the one that kept alerting him to it. Yeah, that's why yeah. I thought it was a great idea. And I, I wondered why why there was no more research done on 
training animals to sniff out things like that, you know? Yeah, you're right. I mean, you think about all the animal, the, all the dogs that we use uh, to detect uh, drugs in airports and other ports of entry, and that they're the best thing that can do that. It's amazing to me that they have that kind of sensitivity. And it's pretty, you know, sometimes you'll get a false positive where a dog picks up on something that's not really anything there, but... Uh, they're pretty accurate. It's pretty impressive. And, and there's certain things that, uh, you know, like cancers that certainly they can pick up on and, and we can't. So I think you're right. I think there needs to be more research in that area. Well, thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. So, Dr. Jimmy just did a quick uh, Internet search and found an article from uh, MIT, uh, like a newsletter they put out from 2021, saying that um, scientists are now – trying to develop an automated odor detection system small to be incorporated into a cell phone uh, that would rival the uh, sensitivity of the dog's nose. So as well, there you alluded you to, so sort yeah. of the AI approach. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, you know, something that's with you all the time. The other thing is you can have variability with that. Even though a dog can do that, just like humans can do certain things, from human to human and dog to dog, they may not have the same abilities or the same you know, you have to rely on the dog. The dog has to sleep. The dog has other things that are going on. You know, all those funny cartoons or Instagram reels of dogs, you know, getting uh, 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 getting their attention span being so small. And if they see a squirrel, that's much more interesting. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think it is an area that, that needs to be, man, they do some cool stuff. I was up in Boston and I actually, for the first time, went uh, over to Cambridge and did a tour of MIT and Harvard, and uh, it's amazing all the different research and things that they've done at MIT, and a lot of that is biomedical um, and the applications of it. So that's uh, probably a good example there. Let's go to Mikey in Mobile. Good morning, Mikey. This is, as usual, a fascinating conversation, particularly when Sue called in. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, and the dog thing, okay, yeah, the the smell thing, having recently, I think I lost my Omicron due, you know, um, sense of smell, and it's just now coming back, and it took almost two months, Um, so. Yeah, uh, with COVID, with with having that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, what I actually called in about is something, <laughs> having rediscovered this, not only, okay, I want to point out, too, that my dogs read my mind, and my cats yeah. always did, too. It's they amazing. They know what I want, but but I do it, always do it to some extent professionally, because the way that I train people, when I was training people in food service, food and beverage service, I said, you got to figure out what they want before they know they want it. And then you're going to be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but we are animals also, after all. Right. Um, uh, okay. Um, uh, a tip that I have recently <laughs> discovered with my newly, um, oh, it's just coming back and it's so wonderful. I can I can smell somebody wearing patchouli in the grocery store again. Um, but uh, is, is something to do with cooking, which at groceries and this time of year, and uh, people being short on time and stuff, I can't help but throw this in. And with uh, please give my kudos to um, Dr. Josie um, because I so much appreciate all the information that she's given me. But this is something that I've recently um, uh, found out. A microwave, um, coupled with all the kinds of foil-wrapped snacks, 
everything from French fried onions to um, things that you're, if you have children around you, they're going to be having. Or if you don't, you know, it's, it's going to be there. Um, but you can take potatoes and put them in the microwave and microwave them, uh, particularly since they go great with other things like the citrus, which is now in season. Um, anyway, you don't put the potato in at the same time. You put the potato in, microwave it, take it out, put it in the foil-wrapped package, close it up. Then you do other things that, that you might want to go with it. Um, some of these things you don't give to your dogs and cats, like um, onions and garlic and, and uh, peppers. Um, but they're great for you. <laughs> yeah. So you do, those, you do those a little differently, and you throw them into the foil packs. Um, uh, and... Uh, Or you can throw in vegetables, you know, like, again, you do them separately and then throw them into the foil pack and reclose it because the foil pack will keep it. And if you really, you know, you got a bunch of different requests, put it in a small thermos, you know, like a a pack here, a pack next to it, a pack next to a pack. You got me? Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, like, like you're camping and and, um, I'm just trying to make sure I'm explaining right. Because not everybody likes the same vegetables, carrots, broccoli, cauliflower. I love them all, but not everybody does. Um, greens, purslane, um, uh, 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 collards, any of those things. You cook them separately, though, and then you, you can put them in the packs. And or you can take that pack and smash it and add the oils of which you were speaking earlier, like the, the wonderful, um, <laughs> oh, any kind of oil. Or if you like uh, fish, as I do, that's really healthy, sardines. You can just take some sardines, take a few party sardines, and uh, tick, again, into the pack, smash it together. Yeah. <laughs> or if you don't like sardines, dairy, you know, right, cheese, right. Um, milk powder. Anyway, all right, I'm motor mouth enough. Thank you, Doctor, so much for all your help. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think it brings up a lot of good uh, points about how we interact with our environment. Um, just, uh, you know, sitting here thinking about that. And people who lose their smell for whatever reason, sometimes it's a traumatic event, like a, a motor vehicle collision where you sever those nerves, those olfactory nerves that pick up on those smells. Um, or a loss of taste. Um, And certainly as you get older, those are things that you could lose. And if you talk to those individuals and look at it uh, over time, it does change the way that they interact with their environment. We take for granted the ability to smell and to taste, um, but it has huge um, effects on how we interact with different things, with how much food we eat, with the types of food that we eat, with all kinds of different things. So you do have to sort of think about that. And our food preparation, there's a lot of research in that in the, you know, in the food industry about how you package that. That's why there's, you do separate some of those things when they could have been combined together in the preparation of either prepackaged foods or when you cook it. Uh, it can have dramatic differences in that. So, uh, and thanks for that. Uh, kudos to Josie uh, uh, Bidwell on, on uh, Southern Remedy uh, Healthy Living on on Monday. You know, we do have... You know, this is the only Southern Remedy program that's sort of wide open, so it's whatever you have on your mind. 
Uh, but we certainly uh, appreciate all the Southern Remedy programs and sort of what they bring to the table. Uh, no pun intended there with a current topic, but uh, there's a lot of things that you can glean from that. So check out those other days, too. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, answering your questions about all kinds of different things on this muggy Wednesday morning in December, right? Let's go to Tracy. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. How are you? Good. So y'all were talking about the dogs who can detect illnesses. And yeah, yeah. I was fortunate I was fortunate enough to actually get a black lab who could do that. Um, my dad was uh, terminally ill with cancer and when he met the dog we went to go take it for a walk and when he's ten months old, he was pulling on the string for me, pulling on a leash for me and I said, Dad, here you walk. I'm because no the dog's gonna just Pulled me down. I said, just let it go. We'll get the dog. Because all the neighbors were out as well. So I handed my dad the leash. This dog turned around and looked and then started taking baby steps. So that was the first inkling that this dog absolutely could tell that my dad was sick. Yeah. And it continued, it continued on. And we had a nurse that came in every morning for several months. She had requested to keep my father because they got along so well. And um, my dog always went back in the room when she came and did whatever it was she had to do and just laid there. And then when she'd leave, he'd walk her out. And the day that my father passed, uh, my dog got between the bed and the nurse and backed her away from my father. Hmm. And it was like, oh, my God, this dog knows passed away. So, and that's just a couple of things that he did. But I had a tenant, too, and my friends knew that the dog could do stuff like that. And I had a tenant that came over uh, to pay rent, and my dog went and laid on his feet, which was a sign that something was wrong. And um, so I called the dog over, and the dog came over by me. And when he left, my neighbor said, why didn't you tell him he was sick? And I went, because people think you're nuts. <laughs> and I said, I'll call him. That's true. I'll call him and, you know, be sure he's okay tonight. Well, when I called, he didn't answer. And I thought, okay, he should call me back. But he did not call me back. And the next day, he did call me back, and I said, Kelsey, I was worried about you. And he goes, I had to call an ambulance last night. And he's like, Tracy, I was bleeding internally. And I said, damn, that's the last time I'm not going to tell people. That is the last time. <laughs> you can think I'm not that's or right. not. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Had, it really is amazing for, uh, for what animals absolutely. can do, yeah. Yeah. So let me tell you one more story. I had an elderly friend that would come over and I was fixing her lunch and my dog went and sat by her. Well, she knew that Elmo could also tell that, you know, you were sick. So I said, well, Ellie, how you feeling? She goes, well, I feel pretty good, but I'm thinking about going and sitting in the emergency room and just waiting. And I just busted out laughing because my dog was sitting right next to her. So, and she knew that... You could tell if you were sick. Right. That was the funniest thing anybody ever said. I'm just going to go sit in the emergency room and wait. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, thank you for those stories, Tracy. That certainly, you know, sort of emphasizes the close relationships we have with our pets and animals and the remarkable things that they can do and that humans can do, too. There's a lot of things that uh, that uh, sometimes I will have, uh, you know, a, a um, I will lean heavily toward ordering a test, but not have a whole lot of evidence to do it. And it turns out being very useful. Now, Certainly that is not very scientific, but um, I think probably underneath the scenes there's a lot of intuition and a lot of – that's built on a lot of experience with a lot uh, – with, with patients that are seen over and over again. So uh, certainly – don't want to discount that, but it is sort of hard to, to um, you know, to study that in lots of different ways. We're going to go to Rachel now from Eupora. Thanks for patiently waiting, Rachel. What's your question this morning? Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have a uh, comment. I'm glad that Sue brought up uh, the connection between animals and uh, humans and the way we can use animals uh, to help us health-wise, but there are instances, many instances, where animals are misused and mishandled uh, for this uh, purpose. Uh, There is a woman at Harvard whose name is Margaret Livingstone, and uh, she has been doing experiments on baby monkeys for 40 years. I'm getting my input information from the uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals. She takes the monkeys away from their mother, and she sometimes uh, experiments in other ways, but one of the things that she does is to sew the baby's monkey's eyes closed to see what their reaction to blindness is. She's been doing this for 40 years with no positive outcome, no help for human beings. Uh, I would recommend that she be fired and that this uh, barbaric uh, treatment should stop. I even have a phone number that you could, uh, that anybody could use if they want to call there and they, uh, somebody can give them my phone number and I'll uh, answer the phone and get them this number about Miss Livingston. Yeah, Rachel, thank thank you for that that comment. And certainly, I I can't you know I'm not familiar with any of that research or uh, you know certainly there are a lot of constraints on animal research that um, that does benefit humans and uh, that needs to be done in an ethical way. And there's other certainly other venues and other people that oversee that. So we don't, uh, we typically don't, um, you know, address that too much on, on Southern Remedy, but certainly we appreciate your comment and we appreciate you listening and calling in. We're going to go, we've got a couple more people on the line, so we're going to go to them right quick. We've got David from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. I got two questions real quick. Number one, uh, can, uh, have they found the, uh, like a DNA test, to confirm whether or not you got a gene that will uh, cause you to have dementia, Alzheimer's. And my second question is, I worked in the chemical industry for years, and I was around uh, nickel catalyst, and on the uh, it was a nickel catalyst powder, and uh, using a chemical process, and had on the, the uh, caution label causes nasal and lung uh, cancer, carcinogenic, and uh, uh, what would be the symptoms of that? It seemed like my breathing has changed. I'll get out of breath and. Um, 
and uh, well, don't have any chest pain or anything. But I'm I, I, I'll get took it out real real easy. Sure, Please get away. Yeah. So so to, two questions. I'll take the first one uh, on uh, a genetic test for Alzheimer's type dementia. You know, there are multiple types of dementia. Um, Alzheimer's is one that you really can't diagnose without uh, definitively without a biopsy. So you don't want to go biopsy in somebody's brain. There's not really a good test to, that's a blood test that tests either from a genetic sample or something else in the blood that says you either have it or you don't. So it is a diagnosis that depends on multiple testing, which is cognitive testing um, that is sometimes uh, combined with um, MRI uh, and other scans of the brain itself to see if there's any changes there. But there is a, a genetic test and a couple of genes that have been associated with an increased risk of Alzheimer's. Now, any kind of genetic testing... Uh, you have to be very careful with that. It doesn't mean 100% that you're going to get that. It may mean that you have a tenfold risk of that, uh, say, from the, the um, uh, background population. So like uh, ApoE4 is one of the genes that if you have one or two copies of that, that you can have an increased risk of Alzheimer's-type dementia. Um, if you do get those kinds of tests and, you know, there's pretty much there's lots of different ways you can do that. A lot of people will go through the mail to get these kinds of things. I would discourage you to do that without first consulting a physician. And if you have access to a geneticist who is an expert in this area, then I think you need to talk to them because it can dramatically affect how you view the rest of your life. And some people you really need some counseling about that before somebody just drops that on you. And again, it does not mean that you're going to develop that. Um, years ago, when I was a medical student, I signed up uh, to be a bone marrow donor. So uh, in doing that, there was an option because they have to type out your blood and different things that are in there. And they have something called a HLA haplotype that they would give back to you. And there are associations with that HLA haplotype with certain autoimmune diseases. Well, being the curious medical student that I was, I looked at it and was like, yeah, sure, I would love to do that. And sure enough, there is a little bit of increased risk based on some of the, the specific things in that haplotype that I would uh, you know, be at risk for. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to develop that later in life, but it is a risk. Now, if it changes some of the things that you do to prevent that, that would be the thing that would be good, right? If, For instance, if there were a test to say, hey, you know, I really want to know if I'm at risk for diabetes because I would really want to do some intensive things to prevent that. Uh, we don't have that test, but uh, if we did have it, that would be useful in changing some of those things. But we already know a lot of things that can help prevent the progress, the uh, um, you know, from getting Alzheimer's or the progression of it. So eating a healthy diet, exercise regularly, and even better than genetic testing is your family history. So family history is even more important than getting a genetic test because that tells you actually that's the actual risk. So if you have Two brothers and a grandfather, for instance, who all developed Alzheimer's in their late 60s, 
that would be, you would be at a very high risk of developing Alzheimer's, and that would be more of a risk. Again, not 100%, but a risk that's pretty high enough that you might want to do some intensive things to, to decrease that risk. So hope that answered that question. And uh, I think you had a sec- separate question about um, – I'm blanking on what it was now, David. Nickel catalyst. Nickel cap, yeah. So, long, right. Uh, uh, so, so yeah, there are a lot of inhaled substances that can increase your risk for certain cancers, particularly lung cancer. Um, and really what you need is a good, if you're having already some problems breathing, I would have your physician send you to a pulmonologist. This is a lung specialist um, that would be able to do some testing. Uh, they may want to do in some uh, you know, semi-invasive procedures like a bronchoscopy where they put a lighted tube down into the lungs while you're sedated and to get some washings of things. They may want to do some CT scans of the lung to see if there's any suspicious um, lesions there. They may want to do some functional testing on the lung volumes and how much air you move in and out. Um, but all those things together can help pinpoint some of the things that are known about some of those exposures. So we have a lot of occupational exposures that we know later on can cause some of those things. But that's who, if you're already having some symptoms, it may not be from that, but it's probably a good idea to get checked out by a lung specialist. All right, thank you. All right, thank you for calling. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of healthcare topic that you might be interested in this morning. Lots of good questions today about a great number of things. If you're not able to call, you can always email us at any time. You can send those email questions to remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Judy from Tupelo. Good morning, Judy. Good morning. Thank you for calling. What's your question this morning? about shingles. I'm 71. I uh, haven't had the vaccine uh, because of the cost, but hopefully in January my Medicare Part D will pay for it. But what I want to know is if you're more uh, uh, predisposed to have shingles if you had a very bad case of chicken box. Yeah, great question. So shingles is caused by the same, I know you probably know this, but just for everybody else out there, it's caused by the same uh, varicella virus that causes chickenpox. And basically what happens is you're exposed to it at some point in the past, and you could have had a full-blown case of chickenpox like I did, um, or you could have had, uh, you could have been exposed and you had sort of a subclinical case, meaning that you didn't have a whole lot of symptoms. There are a lot of people um, you know, varicella virus is very contagious. I mean, if you get in a room with somebody, you just got exposed uh, because it's very easily transmitted from an aerosolized point. Um, so used to, you know, everybody who was who was a kid got that. Um, but you, you know, you get over that initial if uh, once you get over that initial infection of chickenpox, then that virus doesn't necessarily go away. It can hide out and live in nerve cells in your spinal column and the nucleus there. And uh, what happens is your body's immune system recognizes that, so it's programmed to recognize previous infections. And if it can mount up a response, uh, and, and this is one of the times that it mounts up a response for a long period of time, until something happens to your immune system. So it might be a 
Um, it might be another infection. You know, sometimes people will come into the hospital and they'll be sick and they'll have pneumonia or they'll have something else. It could be uh, a cancer that you have, or it could be just getting older. Our immune system wanes. It sort of goes down in its efficiency the older we get. All those things can cause the immune, immune system's response to sort of keep that, that varicella virus where it's, you know, down so that it's not popping back out. Well, if it's, if it's reduced, then it can travel down that nerve, and those nerves, you know, the nerve cells are pretty long. They go all the way down to the outside of the skin, and that's when you get the rash. And unlike your primary case of chickenpox, shingles can last a long time. And even, you know, not just the rash, but the pain is the problem. And most of the time, the pain is very bad. It's excruciating. Uh, it's very irritating. There's not a whole lot of things to do to, to uh, decrease the pain. There are some medications that we use to treat the virus if you catch it early uh, and recognize it uh, so that we can uh, decrease the amount of time and the amount of complications. However, for some patients, they can have pain for months and sometimes permanently in those areas that they have it. And it's a funny-looking rash because it looks like what we call a dermatome. So that's just a certain section where that nerve innervates the skin. And in some cases, it can even cause uh, other problems, particularly if it comes out in the nerves that, um, that uh, control sensation in the face, around the eye. So you, there's been people who've lost their sight um, from cases of shingles. So it causes a lot of pain and discomfort. That's why the shingles vaccine was developed. Now, you mentioned, you know, you know, would it be beneficial? Certainly, everybody over the age of 50, I would recommend that they get it, regardless of if you think you had shing- uh, chicken pox in the past or not. Uh, Judy, you asked, you know, if you had a bad case of it in the past, does that correlate to more at risk? Not necessarily, because it really depends on the immune res- response. So if you had a mild case or you had a bad case, if your immune system's working uh, appropriately, then you're probably not going to have a breakthrough of that. But, and it's impossible to really predict that. Some people get depressed and then they have an, a, or they, you know, lose a, and uh, we've been talking a lot about pets. They'll lose a pet, they'll lose a loved one, and um, they'll have an episode of shingles. So the vaccine really, it, it reminds your immune system hey, remember this virus? Um, you need to start producing those antibodies that you had. So it's sort of a reminder to the immune system at that age that you need to, to uh, produce more of those, uh, more of that immunity. Very effective in decreasing the uh, case of, you know, shingles. We have the, the most recent one is not a live virus. It's a recombinant vaccine, meaning that it's, it's, it's not live. And it's a two-dose uh, series. You mentioned Medicare. And I would check into that with your pharmacy because you should be eligible by now if you're on Medicare, it's it is a little bit different in the way that they pay for it. So you can't really get it at most um, clinics or the hospital. So it's something you should get at the pharmacy. But check with your pharmacy because I would bet Judy that you already can get it. Um, but it's if you have to wait till January for whatever reason, that's fine. But they should be paying for that, you know, on Medicare or most other health insurances pay for it at age starting at age fifty, just because of the increased well, risk. I wouldn't pay for it, but I got a notification. Uh, you've got a human advantage. They do, but I don't have human advantage. Um, yeah. Do you have I'm Medicare, not- though? 
I do have Medicare. Yeah, they can bill. Yeah, they can bill it on Medicare. Um, and it, again, it's it's billed a little bit differently. So I would check into that because they can they should be able to cover for that. Well, I got a letter from Humana, and the way I understood it, according to the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed by Congress. Uh, in January, vaccines will be more available for you. You know, they are covered. Yeah. yeah. Them. So I'm just waiting yeah. to get to find out. Yeah, and, and take that to your pharmacist so that they can take a look at it too because they're the experts on that. Thank you, Judy. Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Hey, I want to thank everybody for calling. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and our podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Thank you.